Do you see him? I do. Okay. Great. Great. Thanks. <clears throat> hey, Pat. Ah. There you are. How am I? You need to send the makeup person over? Don't you have a couple of girls to do that for you? <laughs> no more. <laughs> Never had. You know, when, I, when I was taping everything in studio, I had a makeup girl. I'll bet. And but she was she was cute, but she was very expensive. Are you is your photo on is your camera on? I hope it is. I don't see it. Uh I hear you just fine. I don't see you. Um usually when I sign in, it just comes right up. I mean, Do you have on. a little thing on the video icon down below? Uh uh hold a, on, I'll go to my zoom. It, sometimes it it won't it doesn't start out on it starts uh, off hold on it i did what you said i clicked on that uh let me hit start video there, there i go. am got you looking very pinehurst still i charge want to dress the role <laughs> okay so you like my intro uh yeah i gave you a couple of edits there to okay so i got two of them in here let me finish the other one yeah, just the, the very minor just to be accurate it was three years as depth and nine weeks as acting and i i interpreted nine weeks as, I, I know as, as several months yeah I, I, well several months is fine several months no, is fine that's technically correct yeah um we're not going to have resume inflation on this show no 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 we no never no, we no. don't need it in fact okay no, so no. The, Okay, and so it's not through the PCG, PBGC. It's it's just and also, and also, and labor is also pushing a radically. Okay, I got that. Yeah, chance. the department. Uh, what you were, th I think, what you're thinking about is the the Employee Benefit Security Administration is the depart is the arm of the Department of Labor that administers the ESG world rule and all, but. It's the department that drives it. PBGC is a little more independent. Okay. Well, they that's that's, that's where you're the expert and I am not. <laughs> <laughs> so where do you want to start? I'm, you can see in my open there. I left it I left it under. Uh, sure. So where should we begin? Where do you want to start? <clears throat> um, and we've got about 40, 45 minutes. I'm, I'm at your can... mercy. So. Um, well, I thought, you know, I think as a. <clears throat> As you see in the intro, I want to get people vividly riveted on why this really matters to them. Because, you know, while I've got a lot of people who run groups and know more about this stuff than the average person, I've also got a lot of people who don't know anything about it at all. And maybe, maybe a little history lesson that the labor department is something that's relatively new and it was originally meant to do this and now it's you doing everything. Yeah, maybe we can uh you know that's a that's a good suggestion. Hold on. You know you you put something in my mind and I if I can find it um uh, I wish I could find it handily. But at any rate um, yeah, we can do a little bit of a history of the Department of Labor briefly, and, and uh, because I spent so much time there, and I consider myself a little bit of an amateur historian of the department. Oh, you are. But, yeah. You okay, know, so I, you're you're pro tem, mayor pro tem of Pinehurst. Yes, yes, number two. 
if there's a funeral to go to and the mayor can't make it, he sends me. Mayor Pro Tem of Pinehurst number two golf. No, my pine, I'm, I'm at, man, I'm number two in the in the pecking order at the village of Pinehurst as an elected official. Uh, uh, the village is separate from the resort, but we're okay. in the same community. So. Um, okay, so I've got to get that in. Okay, so uh, let's, all right, so are you ready? Because we're going to, yeah. it's going to be a stream of consciousness a bit. I mean, the, the stuff I understand. on- and so it's, it, you know, this, we're in the entertainment business here. And I think this is what we want to do to raise people's consciousness, to use a bad old 1960s term yes. about what's at stake in that boring old department of labor, which is not, which is not boring at all. It's coming for your, for your wife, your children, and your dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch my dogs. Okay, so let me kick this off. Let me make Go ahead. Sure, let me make sure I'm recording here. I'm recording um, to the cloud. That's what we need. I put Maureen on more of a, she was full-time and now she's part-time, which means I get to do this on my own. Right. But it's really very pretty easy, as you see. Okay. Um, here we go. Hello, Bill. <laughs> here we go. Welcome to the Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Today, we're talking about the U.S. Department of Labor, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the National Labor Relations Board, and the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. These may sound like boring agencies. Uh, they did to me before I started studying them. But what you learn about them is that Congress has granted them a stunning amount of power to regulate virtually every aspect of the American workplace. These agencies administer and enforce more than, more than 180 federal laws uh, and thousands of federal regulations, which rule over 10 million employers and over 150 million workers. Under the Biden administration, the whole of government has been weaponized to promote a so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda that, in fact, wants to bring about just the opposite of what these words mean. And no department has been more weaponized to promote this agenda than labor. This is the most assertive, left-wing, social engineering, and anti-family agenda in America's history. And that one that will radically ratchet up regulatory costs on small businesses and, in reality, all productive industry in the United States. And labor is also pushing a radical so-called ESG investment agenda that will dramatically reduce investment returns for American pensioners. There's probably no one that I can think of that is better equipped to explain all this and what we can do about it than my old friend, the very honorable Patrick Pizzella, who served for three years as our Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Labor and as, and as Acting Secretary for several months in 2019. Pat's also served as a member and chairman of the Federal Labor Relations Authority and in the Department of Education as Deputy Undersecretary for Management. In my work with him, I've come to appreciate that in my experience, no one has a better grasp of, both, grasp of both the big picture and the minutia of the labor laws and regulations than Pat. And 
Pat has a new gig, and as you might see from uh, the fact he's not wearing a suit, Matt is mayor. Pat is mayor pro tem of Pinehurst, North Carolina. <laughs> so, so Pat, welcome. Good, good to talk with you again. It's a delightful, Bill, to see you. And as we say here in uh, Pinehurst, it's a beautiful day in Pinehurst. It's what uh, time's your, what time's your tea time? Well, we, I'm, I'm hoping we can get through this in time for me to make it, but. Uh, it, we're very flexible down here with tea times. <laughs> Forty golf courses in the county. <laughs> so, where, where do you want to begin? You you seem to know more about the Department of Labor than anyone uh, I know. W how did all this get started? And, and well, okay, I actually have spent uh, uh, in the twenty first century alone. I spent eleven years at the Department of Labor. I was Assistant Secretary under Elaine Chow for Administration and Management during the Bush administration. I spent uh, three years uh, as Deputy Secretary of Labor. Um, and uh, in the interim, I spent four years as a, a member and, and then acting chairman of the Federal Labor Relations Authority. So I've really spent a lot of time in the, in the labor space, as they pe people like to say in Washington. Um, the irony of the Department of Labor is that it, it was created and authorized on the very last day that President Taft was in office. As he was leaving in March of 1913, he signed, a, uh, he signed the legislation and he uh, reluctantly signed it. He really criticized the creation of another government agency and all, but he felt it was best to go ahead and sign it and hopefully his- Well, he was busy. Wasn't he also creating the federal income tax and the and the Federal Reserve Board during that well, time. No, uh, they were productive was, in creating things that uh, have begun to wreck the country. Well, I don't know. I didn't go into that history as much as I went into his connection with the Department of okay, Labor. Okay, we'll stick. We'll stick with labor, but it's so uh, there's a lot the, of bad stuff going on in the 19 teens. Yes. Uh, well, that's a whole nother show. But um, uh, so it emerged. Uh, as a department, and uh, over the time, it sort of gathered uh, like a rolling stone and gathered more moss there, and it'd be part of it. OSHA eventually joined it, that four-letter word, Occupational Safety and Health, MSHA, which oversaw the safety in the mines, uh, the Wage and Hour Administration, which administered the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, the Employment Security uh, uh, Administration, Employment Benefit Security Administration, which uh, oversees uh, uh, the uh, ERISA law and pensions. So it's a collection of a, of a lot of these agencies. Its most famous uh, leader uh, head was, of course, Frances Perkins, the first female member of a president's cabinet. And she served 13 years under FDR as Secretary of Labor. Thus, her name is on the headquarters building of the department right now, Frances Perkins Building. Um, as we, uh, as time evolved and the bureaucracy somewhat grew, shall we say, let me jump in though. So I joked about the early 19 teens, but in reality, it was a, in a time when the progressives in America realized a lot of their ambitions. And Francis Perkins was, a, as I recollect, a famous progressive. Yeah. So we talk about the pro progressive agenda it's been over a hundred years in in the works, and yeah. and the seeds of this were right here. And the and the and the th the theory behind creating the Department of Labor was that uh, 
businesses were evil and exploiting workers and that people had the right to unionize and they were being blocked from this. And therefore this created this, this incredible divide between employers and employees, which has only grown uh, worse over the last hundred years. Yeah, well, the, the um, New Deal is real, where the department really started to emerge as a big player and as uh, sort of in the uh, relation to organized labor. I've often said that it's the Department of Labor, not the Department of Organized Labor, though after um, the passage of the Wagner Act and going forward from then, uh, it really became a, a department that the organized labor saw as sort of their, uh, their fiefdom to a degree. Um, and it wasn't uh, until after World War II with the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act that some of the excesses of the uh, FDR era Department of Labor were sort of rattled in a bit. And uh, you saw uh, uh, the establishment of uh, uh, the right of states to enact right to work laws. Uh, and you saw some other restraints regarding boycotts and all that were reaction uh, right after World War II to some of the troubled times between the original passage of the National Labor Relations Act and the Taft-Hartley Act. And then after the Taft-Hartley Act, the only other significant change to labor law in this country was in 1959 when they adopted what was known as the Landrum-Griffin Act, which um, ironically, some of the key movers and shakers in creating that were uh, Bobby Kennedy, who was a, uh, a staff uh, director on the uh, Senator McClellan of Arkansas's committee and Senator John Kennedy. Um, and uh, this bill, Landrum-Griffin, uh, created what's known as the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act which stressed union democracy and put some power in the hands of union members to have some rights to be able to speak up for themselves and have some transparency to the way their unions were treating them. But since that time, 1959, 1960, there's been no major change at all to our federal labor laws. And uh, though there have been attempts, um, and so here we are today with the same basic laws that we've been operating under since the 50s, uh, though the economy has changed because in, in 1955, the AFL, the American Federation of Labor, and the CIO, the Congressional uh, the, um, Industrial Organization, they merged into one big super union. And from that moment on, there has been a steady decline, not a trend, a steady decline in the amount of workers in the private sector who are represented by labor unions. And it's now down to about 5%. When they merged, it was about 35%. Well, what's your assessment of that? I mean, because, you know, the good intentions created these laws, protect workers, um, in many cases, uh, probably a good idea, uh, but in some cases, maybe not so good. And then as time goes on, what is a good idea then, may be a terrible idea now because you, you you say the laws we haven't passed many laws but we've we've brought about tens of thousands of regulations since then so it's not just legislation but it's uh it's ruled by the administrative state and i can't think yes. of a more aggressive ruler than the department of labor yes well and that and that's you've hit sort of on the nub of the problem much of what's coming out of the department of labor now are these rules changes or uh, their interpretation of statutes and their interpretation of their authority through the administrative state 
to um, uh, place uh, guidance. Same sort, of, same sort of thing we're seeing out of the EPA and and, and the other the yes. other alphabet uh, soup uh, agencies. Yes. Um, so uh, and let's take a present day example. Um, the new administration under um, uh, Secretary Walsh decided to issue what's called an emergency temporary standard regarding COVID uh, in the workplace. And they wanted to require uh, uh, require all workers to uh, uh, have a vac COVID vaccine. And uh, we in the, um, under Secretary Scalia, the unions twice took the secretary to court to ask that he be required to issue this temporary standard. He fought it in court and he won. Biden people come in and they say, okay, we're going to push this. They pushed it. They finally got it out. And it went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said, you don't have the right to do that, Department of Labor. So they spared the entire uh, private sector workforce out there from having to have this imposed on them. So excellent example of the administrative state attempting to impose something on all of American businesses. And they were saved by the Supreme Court. And so they didn't get away with that. But that's a probably the most blatant attempt to have such a, uh, a wide uh, landscape over, over the American workforce that one has seen in some time. Thankfully, they failed. Um, well, and, this is the Bill Walton show, and I'm talking with the, as I put it, the very honorable Patrick Pizzella, who was a big, big deal in the Department of Labor for years, uh, talking about that department. And the question I've got for Pat is, uh, what's the Department of Labor doing that it shouldn't be doing? And <laughs> how much worse has it gotten since Biden people have come in? My impression, as I said at the outset, is that they're they're moving apace to uh, to do a lot of stuff, which I think is quite damaging. Well, I mentioned a little bit ago they 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 tried, of course, to impose their COVID nineteen vaccination standards on the entire workforce, uh, and they are uh, attempting, uh, which I think is very damaging. They're getting closer, I think, to um, attempting to put new rules in place regarding independent contractors or better known as the gig economy, uh, which is a growing segment of our economy, uh, depending on who you talk to, could be anywhere from 15 to 20% of the workforce is involved in the gig economy. Many people who have two jobs, they may have one job where they're an employee of a company, and they may have had another job where they're an independent contractor. They may you know, drive for Uber, or they, uh, they may be a Santa Claus at a shopping mall during the winter. Uh, Christmas season. Uh, those are gig jobs. They're part-time and they are set up to help the, the individual's schedule and work situation. Uh, but uh, organized labor does not like the gig economy because they find it obviously very challenging to organize workers uh, who are very independent as technically they are. How does, how does organized labor, you, you, you pointed out earlier, organized labor has fallen down to a very, very low number relative to what it used to be. How do how do they still have this kind of clout? Well, they 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 are a uh, financially a very well off operation. They collect billions of dollars a year in dues, uh, and they obviously have a presence in Washington D.C. Uh, as well as, of course, in every state to a degree. 
So uh, politics is a big part of what organized labor does because the workforce that they, the percentage of the workforce that they've organized has continually been shrinking, but their coffers are, you know, still uh, have some money in them unless yeah. they've had some deposits in the uh, Silicon Valley bank. <laughs> well, they did and they're okay because okay. They've, been, <laughs> they've, been, they've been bailed out. I mean, you know, that's a, where you want to put your money if you're, want to keep it really safe is put it in a, in a very progressive woke uh, financial institution. You're, you're, you're sure to be bailed out by, uh, by the feds, <laughs> but don't, don't, don't put your money in uh, East Palestine or East Palestine uh, national bank, because right. you will be ignored by the feds. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... okay. A little editorial in there, but Pat, I, okay. So, so what happened with the, I think we need to get into this gig economy, independent okay. contractor employee thing a little bit more, because I've had a, several businesses where the distinction between independent contractor and employee was blurred. Well, and it's hard to figure it out. The IRS has got some rules the labor's got some rules. I'm sure other agencies do, but as a, as an entrepreneur, as an employer, which I was, uh, if you put somebody in a payroll, there's a, a tremendous burden there in terms of withholding and benefits and regulation and paper and things like that. If on the other hand, you say somebody, they want to work 10 hours a week and they want to go drive a car for you or drive you in your taxi service, they're an independent contractor. Then your only relationship is 1099. Right. You work X number of hours, you do a certain number of things and you get a check and you file your own tax return. And it's, it's, it's quite simple. Making people employees imposes an incredible burden on both the uh, the employer and the employee. Yes, you, you've described it very well. And what's emerged in the 21st century, for sure, is uh, these new business models operated on on uh, platforms. Many of them in the technology space, but some of them very old that we don't even think about uh, of the part time worker. Uh, and that is a worker part-time, largely on their own decision. Maybe their, uh, their home life, their, their childcare responsibilities require them to only work, uh, or allow them to only work so many hours a day or a week so they can handle other, uh, other responsibilities they have. And uh, obviously the well-known ones are the Uber and the uh, uh, Lyft and the uh, the delivery types. And, and they don't want to be employees. They want to no, be. No, they, they actually want to be independent because they can decide when can I drive that car? Or if you, um, uh, in some cases, uh, also in um, uh, franchise operations, people, they, they, they can't be full-time employees. But Pat, so, Pat, let, me, let me go big picture on you here. $5 word alert, voluntary exchange. It's where you get to make a contract with me. You think it's in your benefit. I think it's in my benefit. It's just between the two of us. And it's, it treats us like we're, you know, you're grown up. You can, you can discern what your own interest is and you enter into the relationship or you don't. Right. It seems like everything in the labor laws have done immense damage to that voluntary relationship and it's incredibly parental and insertive assertive and 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 impunitive and they just assume that that employees are children that can't negotiate on their own behalf and they've got to impose all these regs on employers yeah. 
and it has an incredibly dead weight, incredible dead weight on, on the economy and economic activity. I mean, if you want to look at reasons for lower productivity, I blame the Labor Department. And I'm going to hold you accountable for it, for not fixing it while you were there. <laughs> I know you will. Uh, well, uh, a little bit of history. Um, there is somewhat of a, a little bit of a gray area between the um, uh, independent contractor and the full-time employee um, and how people are classified. So misclassification does occur from time to time. But what emerged with these new platform uh, companies and business models in the in the last 20 years or so was a thriving thriving economic model and uh with independent, point, within with independent contractors at the heart of it yes and okay. and it was it went it was national uh but some people might suggest that it got its birth in california what happened is it became so successful uh, organized labor said we've got to put a stop to this and we've got to force these independent contractors to be employees, okay? Because then we've got a shot at them at organizing them. Um, so they got the legislature in California passed a bill, famous bill now known as AB5. And uh, there was a ba backlash. And the private sector went out and got a repeal effort on the ballot in California of all the states. And it was on the ballot in November of 2020. And this is Joe Biden was carrying the state by, I don't know how many points, 20 points. His running mate was from California. And AB5, the voters there, overwhelmingly repealed that law that the legislature had passed. Because it, if it, they found out it was affecting them. It was affecting journalists who aren't employees anymore. They're uh, independent journalists and they get paid by the, so by this the click of the work. It's overwhelmingly popular to let people remain independent contractors if they so choose. And the fallout from that was organized labor thought other states were about to going to pass other bills similar to what California did. What happened is after they saw that vote in California, it's really slowed down elsewhere. So what they have turned to is the U.S. Department of Labor to put a rule in place that makes it more difficult to allow people to be classified as independent contractors. And that is what is uh, they're in the process of doing. So they found a way end to not make it a law. It's another rule, which is not subject to the popular vote. Uh, correct. You are correct. Great. Well done, guys. <laughs> Before we left the Department of Labor, Secretary Scalia, we issued a, 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 a rule that brought clarification and independence to independent contractors. The new administration has a different view of that, and we'll see how that plays out in court. Well, I've weighed in on where I come out on it, but it, but so I've still let's stick. With, this is this is Bill Walton, and we're talking with Pat Pazella, who's great knowledge of of labor and labor laws and the regulations in this country is an invaluable asset to our side. Uh, but I, I still he still hasn't answered my question. Is Pat? What is labor doing that it shouldn't be doing? If you were, if you were, if you were secretary with no constraints, really, just to do the right thing, to make the the economy, to free up labor, to still protect people where they need to be protected, but make make the the market for for labor more efficient and and more productive, what would you do? 
Well, the first thing is, of course, to do no harm, which means not passing regulations that place a burden on entrepreneurs and job creators, uh, which is what we very much tried to do during the Trump administration. And we're quite successful at, at rescinding some very uh, onerous regulations from the uh, Obama era and putting in some ones in place that provided more freedom for to workers. Um, secondly, uh, one of the things that the department really needs to do is to uh, get a better handle on what I'll call the, the fraud that exists in the unemployment insurance programs that are administered in the 50 states. During the COVID-19 era, there was a big rush to push money out the door, just push it out the door. Uh, and uh, despite calls from uh, some folks at the Department of Labor, including the secretary at the time, that we've got to be more careful. We've got to have some more criteria before this money goes out the door. The rush to get that money out the door, you can you can go to the Inspector General website at the Department of Labor, and it's a long, long list of the problems and the, the fraud and the money they're trying to now collect back. Doesn't that number mount up to the hundreds of billions of dollars? I'm, I'm not sure if it, it's hundreds of billions, but it's really close to 100 billion. It's really uh, close to 100 billion. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was and, and they're not finished counting and they're not finished sorting it out. And they eventually they will. Uh, so uh, do no harm. Uh, tackle the, the the fraud and and uh, the mispayments and so forth that go out. Uh, and in general, look where the department has extended overextended itself beyond what really was the intent of Congress when they created such programs. Uh, uh, because there's a lot of ways to pull back uh this overreach because once government once government starts down that path they just keep going down that path unless you could grab the reins and say whoa and then try to pull back the administrative state uh, i'm uh, optimistic that uh, the courts particularly as we look at the supreme court's actions uh, as i mentioned earlier in that covid-19 issue with the department of labor the courts are sending a message to the regulatory agencies you better have some real clear authority from the United States Congress before you start uh, promulgating regulations that are going to impact the American people. So let's, we, we touched on this and I wanted to probe, union membership is falling in the private sector, but I think there's seven, six or seven or eight million union employees in the United States. And now I think fully 5 million of those are public uh, sector uh, union union employees yeah. working for state and local government, federal government, and of those, 60, 50, 70 percent are, are teachers. And so you've got you've got the the, the public employees really driving this. Was yeah. labor involved in that? Is that something? Now, the, the the way the federal labor laws are set up, um, the federal government has really no say in. Uh, state and local employees. That's a determinative, that is determined state by state. Uh, the uh, federal labor laws uh, deal one with the private sector employees, not the public sector employees. There's a separate law for federal employees, uh, uh, but that that's much uh, sort of a smaller universe okay. than, the, than the, what's going on in 50 states. Well, I have a point of view. I don't think public sector employees should be unionized. They've got a total conflict of interest. 
Well, that's, uh, that's, you know, Fed Franklin Delano Roosevelt felt that way. George Meany felt that way. Uh, and the public employee uh, unions are a relatively well, new phenomenon. Well, except, except that John Kennedy signed it into law. Well, I'll tell you a very interesting. <laughs> uh, it wasn't a law, it was an executive order. And okay. if you read well. it, uh, uh, if you read it closely, Bill, who needs laws when you have a you have a pen? I understand, but if you read it closely, there is a law now. It was signed uh, by Jimmy Carter, uh, but if you read it closely, the Kennedy Executive Order. Uh, the ironic thing about it is, it's often referred to as the uh, <clears throat> green light for collective bargaining in the federal workforce. And to a degree it is, but there are two words missing from John F. Kennedy's executive order. Those words are collective bargaining. So even he, I think, at that point was a little reluctant to, to um, put the word collective bargaining next to a federal employee because he, he, was, gonna be, he was the chief executive at that time. So, uh, uh, well, anyway, we have it and it's, it's, we have it. We, we, I mentioned the uh, ESG. You've done some work on that. And yes. labor is now push, pushing ESG, and, and which stands for environmental, social, and governance. Uh, and nobody knows exactly what those words mean, which is part of the problem with ESG investing. Why don't you, why don't you, why don't you amplify? What's your take on, on this? Well, uh, before there was ESG, there was something called ETI economically targeted investments. Okay. And this was uh, something really created during the Clinton administration under Secretary Reich. And they were gung-ho to get their hands on pension assets, pension money that they viewed as sitting there right for being allocated to whatever cause or economically targeted investment they thought was a good idea. And this was all union money, basically. And the unions uh, officials also wanted to get their hands on it. The law placed some constraints around their ability to do that. There are certain things like fiduciary responsibility that's required of, of pension asset managers and so forth. Well, uh, um, Reich uh, issued what was then called an interpretive bulletin. You'll like this bill again, no notice and comment, no input from the citizens. He, it's interpretive, his interpretation in 1994. It's and he Washington's was favorite way to do things, Pat. You know yes. that. I mean, and, that's the. And he was beginning to put in place something called a clearinghouse so that this clearinghouse could decide which of these economically targeted investments were really the right ones. Who ran the clearinghouse? Well, here's what Reich? happened. Reich? Something <laughs> happened to intervene with the whole, whole plan. Yeah. Uh, the 1994 election. And uh, Newt Gingrich uh, uh, took over the House and the Republicans took over the Senate. And soon after that, uh, Chris Cox, a young congressman from California, and Jim Saxton, a congressman from New Jersey, held a hearing on this very topic. And lo and behold, after that hearing, the clearinghouse went away and the Clinton administration and all sort of pulled back from that. But their interpretive bulletin was out there. I joined the Department of Labor in 2001. In 2006, some folks brought to our attention, the Secretary Chow's attention, uh, really, this uh, interpretive bulletin. So we looked at it, and we, we could see what the problem was. You're basically saying to folks, hey, go ahead, go ahead. We won't pay too much attention to what you do. 
So we, um, at her direction, we drafted up our own interpretive bulletin. And uh, so we changed the paradigm there as to, uh, and reminded people of their fiduciary responsibilities. Well, it got put in place and it stayed there until um, the second term of the Obama administration, where some people went to Secretary Perez and it's been, it was reported in the paper and they told him that the, the interpretive bulletin issued by Secretary Chow has placed a chilling effect on pension managers who would like to do something with these assets that they have some say over and use them. By that time, ESG was just emerging. But, um, and uh, so um, they issued their own interpretive bulletin. <laughs> <laughs> revising ours. Who's Isn't they? It? Who's who's they? Uh, Perez, Secretary Perez. Okay, that. Oh, he's 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 great. He later went on to head the DNC. Uh, yes. Okay. So, so you're a great, a great bipartisan guy. Absolutely. I'm following your administrative state nightmare that you lied out. It's it's true. So then, <laughs> that's worse uh, than we came back in, and um, um, Secretary Scalia when he arrived made a determination, we need to sort of stop this ping pong. Let's go out with our rule and get notice and comment from people and it'll have some more durability. Uh, it took some time, we put it out. It was a good rule. Uh, and it really reminded pension managers and the asset uh, managers that they had a first, a fiduciary responsibility to those funds that they're administering on behalf of the pensioners. We got it in there. It was in for a while. And when Biden's folks come in, they said, oh, no, we got to pull that back. Well, but 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 to put a fine point on it, fiduciary responsibility, prudent man rule means basically you do with your money what a prudent man would do or prudent, right. I guess now, person. Sure. Um, and that is you put it where it will get the highest return. Correct. And fast forward to ESG investing, environment being the big one there, which is climate change. And it's utterly clear that that's not where you get the highest return. The only way climate investment gets a high return is through government subsidies. Right. And there's trillions of dollars in the bills passed in the last year aimed at climate subsidies. And most of them went to, to Al Gore and their friends and all the people in the form of tax returns and, and favorable, uh, favorable financing for stuff they want to do. So this is still targeting investing, but now it's got a sharper focus on climate. Absolutely right. And and yet when this first concept first emerged, you know, that was before, that was even before I think Al Gore created the internet. That's how long ago it was. But um, <laughs> at, at any rate. Um, he was busy in 1994, whatever. Yeah. yeah. At, 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 at any rate, the, uh, uh, this issue has now gotten quite a lot of attention, partially for what you said, that as, as truly financial minds look at the numbers, uh, the ESG investments have not been performing as well as your regular investments. Uh, you've seen uh, companies like Vanguard back off from their ESG advocacy on the, uh, from the Net Zero Coalition. Uh, and you've, uh, you see lawsuits filed by attorney generals. You've seen states take the initiative um, to say, hey, wait a minute. If you're going to be using some of our state pension money assets, you've got to pick assets that are going to produce some real financial returns and not, uh, you know, 
investing in the Amazon rainforest because you think it's a swell idea. And so that's uh, this will play out both in ironically in the election cycle, I think, because more and more people are becoming attuned to this because it's their pension money. Most people don't pay attention. Bill, Bill, you're a, a, a known and successful investor. You know, you know how to manage money and all. But most of the people who put money into pensions, they put it there on the theory that I can trust these folks. That's somebody somebody in the investment firm is going to act on the prudent man theory and and invest the money to get the highest returns. Just to weigh in just a little bit, this highest return thing is very, very subtle because you can argue, well, climate climate investing's got a good return. Well, it's got a good return because of massive subsidies. Without the subsidies, it, it it's it's way, it's significantly not a good return. It's a negative return. So You've got this circularity where you've got government subsidies going in to make it a good return, but it's never the marketplace that's making the uh, the deciding. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and sound investments over time, uh, asset managers know what's a sound investment. Yeah, uh, and sometimes th these new these new ideas, it's like the hula hoop of the moment. Everybody wants the hula hoop, and then a year later. Nobody's buying hula hoops. Well, and, and the other thing for our investment, for, for the people who don't know what exactly this works, just look at one thing. Look at the fee that's on the fund, because my old creative buddies on Wall Street figured out you slap ESG on something. It seems socially good, social purpose, and you can get 75 basis points instead of uh, 10 basis points to manage it. So yeah. the fees are much, much higher if you're yeah. an ESG fund. Obviously, you know this business better than most. And uh, I, I think the more sunlight brought on this by uh, podcasts like yours, what we're doing -eds that are written in, in many newspapers, uh, it's percolating people's minds because a lot of people have pension money that's being managed by someone they don't know. And, you know, they they have a reason to be concerned. So I, I think this is going to play out in the courts and in the election cycle. So issue. Uh, we've got a, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, again, I keep getting back to Chairman Pat or or Secretary Patrick Pizzella running the next Department of Labor under our next Republican president. What's what are the first, what are the top three things you do uh, to 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 bring about good change at labor? Boy. Well, well, first thing, I, first not, thing not to I, put you not to put you on a spot. I first didn't thing I, I, I would do would be to wake up from that dream, Bill. But uh, <laughs> I, my only real interest is is running the transition uh, next time. But um, um, I, I do think uh, you have to do more than that, Pat. The, depart so the Department of like you know the, the golf down here is great, Bill. The uh, <laughs> the, the uh, Department of, of Labor is really it's a regulatory machine that needs to be reined in in many cases and that has to be priority one um without getting regular regulation specific there's a it's a target rich environment mm -hmm. um the uh second thing is to i would say change the paradigm a bit from a going back to being a department of labor and not a department of organized labor mm -hmm. uh, so that the focus is on our tremendous workforce of which 
95% of the private sector are, are not members of organized labor. But in the same breath, you're respectful for those who are members because they're part of the workforce. Um, and I would say uh, the third thing gets back to the fundamentals of managing the department. It has grown more than it needs to grow. Uh, it, just in, this, in these few years, it went, when we left, um, we had a budget of $13 billion or so. They're now asking for $15 billion. When we left, we had about oh, uh, 13,000 employees. They're asking in their new budget, the Department of Labor, for $17,000. Um, so I really think those are the three things that uh, buckets that I would look at. What are those 4,000 new people going to do? Well, you know, Bill, they're going to go right in some of your favorite regulations if they get the chance. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I thought I, uh, as we're closing, I thought I'd uh, share a little historical note with you about the department. Uh, um, uh, you know, of the 12 secretaries of labor who were appointed by Democratic presidents in the entire history of the department, there's only been one secretary of labor who served a shorter period of time than Secretary Walsh, who recently left the department to go uh, work on behalf of the National Hockey League uh, retirees. And that person was Arthur Goldberg, who left to go on the Supreme Court when Jack Kennedy appointed him to the Supreme Court. So um, uh, we'll, obviously there's going to be a new Secretary of Labor, there'll be some new hearings, and there'll be a chance to uh, a lot of these issues to be explored before a Senate confirmation process. Well, I, I, as usual, you've you've edified me, Pat. You've been doing <laughs> you've been doing that since I got involved in this uh, politics and policy world. I appreciate it. I guess you and I got to know each other first when Ed Ed Meese brought it together. Ed Meese the, introduced us, yeah. A conservative Action Project. Well, we're yeah. still we're still traipsing along there. I, I think yeah. we're making some progress, not nearly yeah. enough. So, uh, Pat, thanks so much, Pat Bazella. Um, great guy. And I, I really feel, I see that sun dappling in on your sweater. Yeah. I feel like I really got to get you out to the golf course. <laughs> Come on down to Pinehurst. It's, it's a okay. beautiful day down here. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> I've enjoyed this very much, Bill. It's, it's good to see you. And uh, uh, just, just talking with you brings back a lot of fond memories. Yeah. Well, come on back to Washington. We'll do some, we'll do some good together. So this okay. has been the Bill Walton show with Pat Pizzella. And we've been talking about labor department of and i hope you enjoyed the conversation hope you learned something about labor because it's it's one of those boring sounding agencies which, which we really need to watch because it's doing stuff we don't like uh, as always you can find our show on all the major podcast platforms on rumble youtube uh, we're on substack we're also on cpac now on on um, monday nights and Please send us your comments, comments on, on Substack or on our website, thebillwaltonshow.com. Pay a lot of attention to what you'd like us to cover and, and what to do in upcoming shows. So anyway, thanks for being involved, and uh, we'll be talking soon. Right. All right, Patrick, we did it. Hey. We did it. That was enjoyable. Yeah. You, you make it you you make it pretty easy, Bill. You you got the, the you got the flow there. You had me going. Well, that's I, the I hope whole... I hit the notes you wanted hit. You hit them all. You hit them all. Um, you hit them all, and it's a complicated subject that I think we had some fun with. 
Yes. And, you know, that's the key for something like this. So, yeah, we, you know, so you were great. And uh, I think showing up in your sweater got us off to a good start. <laughs> <laughs> so, I thought about that when I was putting this, I said, oh, what the hell? I'm in Pinehurst. What am I going to pretend about? <laughs> you know. So Bill Pascoe keeps asking me to play golf and I'm keep saying yes, but I never do. Do you ever get up here? Maybe we should do a reprieve. If I get up there and, and bring my sticks, I'm definitely calling you guys. Uh, okay. I I, uh, I was planning to come up uh, in uh, January. Uh, Gene Scalia was having a reunion, a one-year, a two-year reunion of our of the staff from BOL. And lo and behold, my wife had to get hip replacement surgery the day before. It wasn't, yeah. you know, all of a sudden. And so that killed that trip. And um, I, I don't know when I'll be back if, if this year sometime, but if I do, I'll, I'll give you a heads up. And if you, you know, you come, come up when the weather is warm, let's play. Let's walk yeah. and talk. Let's walk and talk. Yes. I enjoyed that. I remember those days. All right, my friend. Enjoy. Take Thanks. care. Take care of Pinehurst. <laughs> well, thank you, Bill. Bye-bye. Okay. Here we go.